Hello, I'm Mark, and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to become more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. Hello, everyone. How are you all doing? I uh, hope you're having an enjoyable morning uh, or afternoon or wherever you are, uh, as I am. It's one of those beautiful, crisp autumn mornings. The sun is streaming through my office window as uh, as I speak. Uh, I've got the the window open, in fact. Um, So uh, if you listen carefully, you might hear the odd bit of birdsong in between me talking. Um, I, I'm feeling particularly grateful just because I feel better. I've uh, delayed recording uh, this week's podcast because I was just feeling so grim the rest of the week. Uh, I had a bit of a cold, um, but that wasn't too big a deal uh, until on top of my cold, um, I went to do some training in Cardiff, uh, University of Cardiff, and uh, managed to pick up some food poisoning. Uh, so it was a slightly challenging uh, training. So thank you if you were if you're listening, if you were there in in Cardiff, <laughs> thank you for uh, for bearing with me. Uh, it wasn't quite as sparkly as normal, but uh, but you guys uh, had lots of good ideas and uh, there was lots of great discussion. And I think um, hopefully not many people noticed. Um, well, uh, I'll let you decide. Uh, anyway. Um, uh, also, thank you guys for your uh, suggestions of unsung impacts. Uh, lots more coming in, and uh, I also asked. Uh, last time I spoke about this, um, uh, if I could get some ideas for how I might celebrate this. Um, So uh, some good ideas, some stranger ideas. (laughs) Um, uh, But yeah, the the three ideas which I I think I may well go with here, um, but uh, but do do feel free to improve on these, is uh, is to run this as a competition. Uh, so the, the idea is that, um, that I think me and my team here at Fast Track Impact will maybe try and shortlist uh, what we think are the, the coolest unsung impacts and, uh, and then put it out to, to you all to vote and tell us which one is your favourite. Uh, I was trying to think what criteria we would use for a judging and actually, you know what, it was too hard. So let's just give it to you guys. You can make your own minds up. Which ones do you like best? And um, and then the, the, the top ones uh, we will uh, feature in uh, the next issue of our magazine due to come out in uh, in January next year. Uh, and the very best one, uh, some kind of prize. Uh, so we're thinking of a cash prize at the moment. Um, so I don't know, a thousand pounds, something like that, um, that can go to you or to your research group to do something um, to build on and celebrate. Uh, or, uh, yeah, either build on, make your um, your unsung impact even cooler, uh, or just to celebrate it, um, go out for a fancy meal with your friends. Um, that's a very fancy meal for a thousand pounds. But um, uh, yeah, that's that's our idea so far. Um, uh, and also, I've been discussing with Jen Chubb, uh, who is uh, one of uh, my long-standing uh, collaborators. Uh, who trains with Fast Track Impact, and uh, she uh, she was uh, at a training, and um, and she actually came up with this idea of unsung impacts uh, after she uh, met someone who had, if I remember this rightly, they'd um, they'd worked with a violinist, so a, a professional violinist. Um, who was doing incredible work, but they had some kind of disability or accident or something like that, and they'd done something through their research that had enabled this violinist to be able to play again. And it was one person who could now play the violin um, at a high level, um, but, uh, but but that was it. That was their impact. And it completely, it blew Jen away. Um, it, it inspired this researcher. It inspired me. And we were like, this is crazy. Why can't we celebrate things like this? Why, why don't funders and ref panels and government 
students and uh, and other researchers get impressed by this kind of thing, and we should totally celebrate this. So, um, so so Jen, it was it was your idea. If you're listening, thank you um, for for pitching this idea. I'm I'm running with this now, and uh, I've, I've uh, reconnected with Jen, uh, and we're thinking, hey, maybe we could write an article about this. Um, so uh, there could be uh, another chub and read article uh, coming, um, uh, analysing what, what what actually do you submit to us and, and what are the characteristics of these unsung impacts and, uh, and maybe some deeper, more political stuff around um, why we don't and how we could celebrate them better. Um, so uh, this is growing arms and legs at the moment and uh, they're very cool arms and legs so keep uh, keep coming in with uh, with ideas um, uh, either email me google me and, uh, and email me at, um, uh, at my Newcastle email address or uh, send me a message on Twitter that's the easiest way to get in touch uh, now to today's episode um, I'm calling transformative and disruptive impact uh, and this perhaps sounds grander than it really is because I, I'm struggling with this one at the moment um, uh, this is four questions that I believe can help you achieve impacts from your research that disrupt old ways of doing things and lead to fundamental transformations in the organizations that you work with and potentially uh, in society. Uh, the reason I'm struggling with this is that, uh, that this is actually a challenge that was given to me. Uh, so uh, one of the projects that uh, I'm leading at the moment is funded by the Global Food Security Programme. Uh, and uh, John Ingram, who is the, the lead of that, um, and his colleagues there came up with a 4R framework, uh, four different ways of conceptualizing resilience. Uh, and the fourth way of conceptualizing this is reorientation, uh, which I would describe as transform transformation. Uh, and uh, and we went around the room and all of the new projects that had been funded had to explain how their research was going to um, uh, create resilience in one of these four ways. Uh, and as we went around the room, all of the other projects had ideas about how they were actually going to take this all the way to the fourth R and they were going to create transformative change. And I'm sitting there kind of quaking in my boots thinking, you know what? That isn't what we propose to do. We we proposed to do the first three, but we hadn't even thought about how we could move to the fourth one. Um, and so, yeah, when it came to it, I just had to fess up and said, "Well, yeah, all you guys, you're doing great impact." And um, I'm I'm playing catch up here, but uh, I'm learning. I'm thinking about this. And so, ever since that that first workshop, I've been trying to think, how can I push my impact to that transformative, disruptive level where we do something completely radical. Um, so uh, it's a challenge to myself, and I'm not sure if I'm completely there yet, but I'm going to throw this challenge out to you uh, and give you three ways um, that I think are fairly straightforward uh, to think about how you can generate impact that can really change the world. Uh, and there is this fourth way that I'm struggling with that maybe you, you guys will find easier. Who knows? Um, so <clears throat> um, four questions. Let me... Um, uh, maybe go through the the questions to start with um but when fact four concepts that lie behind the questions as well in fact so um uh, i will read out the concepts and then uh the questions that i've developed for each of these concepts um and you may realize depending on your discipline this is stuff that actually comes from um some kind of more fundamental research in ecology and then engineering on concepts of resilience, but um, but for me these are actually fundamentally all about uh, all about impact. So uh, the the concepts are uh, the four R's are robustness, recovery, reorganisation, and reorientation. 
And if that doesn't make any sense to you, don't worry. Uh, I'll explain um, uh, how these four concepts can enable us to work with organizations, stakeholders, publics, society to, to create impact. So the first one is, is robustness. Uh, and this is the extent to which a system, it could be an organization, could be a person, um, uh, the extent to which a system maintains its structure and function when things are thrown at it so that it continues providing the things that people value, outputs or, or whatever. Uh, so uh, disaster strikes, um, the world changes, something happens. Um, how robust are you? How robust is this organization? And how can we, through our research, enable these, uh, these, these people we're working with to be more, more, more robust so that they can continue doing the things, uh, providing the outcomes, the benefits to society that, that are most important to them? So my question on this is, how can my research strengthen people and organizations, make them more robust, so that they are able to withstand or resist change and continue to provide or get the outcomes or benefits that they need? The second of these concepts is recovery. Uh, and this is essentially how quickly or effectively a system regains its structure and its function so that it can continue providing outputs after something is thrown at it. So let's just accept now we can't be strong enough, we're not robust enough, we're going to have some kind of failure, it's, it, the system will fail, the, the company might uh, have a, a, a quarter in a, a year in, um, uh, in loss. Uh, our organization um, might take a real pummeling. Um, but the question is, can we get back up again? And can, through our research, can we enable people to find ways of much more quickly and effectively bouncing back from negative change? Uh, and so my question is, uh, how can my research enable a person or an organization to bounce back from changes that have impacted on them negatively or that I think are likely to impact on them negatively in the future so that they can cope better, survive and continuing, continue doing what they do best? The third of the concepts is reorganization. It's the ability of a system to adapt its structure and function to maintain outputs or benefits when things are thrown at it. So uh, we're saying, okay, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not robust. I can't, I can't withstand this change. I just have to accept it. It's going to come. Um, and you know what? When it, uh, when it comes, I don't think this is something that we could actually bounce back from very quickly or easily. So uh, instead, um, through my research, can I enable this organisation, this group, to reorganise itself, to adapt, so that actually it's a different organisation. It works differently. It's structured differently. So that actually when that impact comes, that negative thing comes, when, when that change, that challenge occurs, they are, in fact, able to continue producing the things that are most important. They just do it in a different way, which is now not vulnerable to the things that I think are going to happen. Um, so my question here is, uh, can my research enable a person or organization to change what it does and how it does things so they can protect their core mission and still achieve the things that are most important to them? The fourth of these four R's is reorientation. So the system is transformed into something that is structured uh, and or functions uh, in new ways, delivering new outputs that are valued as much 
or more than previous outputs. So you completely reframe the challenge and you find more disruptive ways of achieving things that are actually completely different, but in fact are still valued by people. And in some cases are actually valued more than the thing that they got before. So you're thinking completely differently now. This is this, is this idea of transformation and the thing that I'm struggling with. Um, so the question here is, how can my research enable people to look completely differently at old problems or disrupt old ways of doing things so that people and organizations can do completely new things in new ways that are actually valued more than the old ways of doing things and the things that they produced? Now, theory is good, um, but let's let's do some practice here. I, I think to make this make sense and to make this this workable, um, uh, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. So. Um, I'm going to do this in two ways, actually. So first of all, I want to go through these four concepts and uh, and show how you can um, make impact from research that uh, achieves each of these four kind of modes of of, of impact. Um, uh, and I'm going to give you a business example, and I'm going to give you a policy example. Um, uh, as I've done in previous episodes, I'll draw on some of my own uh, experiences, just because that's easy, sorry. Um, uh, but this is where you get the, the, the rich kind of lived uh, reality, hopefully, as well. Uh, so my business example will be uh, my own business, Fast Track Impact. My policy example is uh, going to be from my PhD research, uh, where I was working uh, with the, the government of Botswana, um, uh, from work I was doing in the Kalahari Desert in southern Africa, um, and uh, I was also working with a UN project um, uh, in my PhD. So we'll uh, we'll have a look at those two examples, and uh, and I'll explain exactly how you might actually generate impact in these four very different ways. So robustness, the, the idea that you strengthen, you make an organization, a group of people more strong and robust so that they can resist um, uh, whatever gets, gets thrown at them. Um, my question was, how, how can my research help that organization become more robust so they can resist and uh, change and maintain what's important to them in a changing world? Uh, for business... <clears throat> This um, uh, is Fast Track Impact, and uh, our challenge is that uh, we, we have a cliff edge uh, in front of us. So um, at the moment, we do the majority of our training in the UK, uh, and there is uh, a government-funded uh, process where every seven years, uh, universities get uh, evaluated on their impact now. Uh, as well as other things, and um, and so everyone is is madly dashing towards the current deadline in 2020. Um, and once that deadline is over, well, hey, who needs to bother about impact anymore? <laughs> uh, so the I don't know if this is a cliff edge, but I'm preparing for the fact that uh, everyone might be just so sick of impact after having uh, submitted all of these impact case studies that they don't want to hear of me or fast track impact ever again. Um, and so the, the first attempt that, that we made to, uh, on, on thinking, well, how could we become strong enough, robust enough that we can withstand a change like that was to say, well, maybe strength is size. So we need to become as big as we can. We need to turn, turn Fast Track Impact into a multinational company through franchising. Uh, and now that means that um, if some franchises fail, it doesn't matter. There's plenty others uh, out there. Uh, and, and in fact, if the UK 
franchise uh, ends up failing, um, then hey, we've got other franchises and we survive, we reinvent ourselves. Um, we're, we're okay. We, as a company, we're big enough, we're strong enough that we can withstand those kinds of impacts. Um, and um, it doesn't really matter um, how, how much the world changes around us. We're, we're big enough, we're strong enough. In policy terms, then, um, this is uh, a situation in southern Africa where you um, are in a desert. This is the Kalahari Desert, there's, so there's not a lot of water. Um, but uh, the second biggest export from this country, uh, second only to diamonds, is, um, is, is beef, it's cattle. So uh, we've got a, a thriving um, industry. And uh, farmers uh, are desperate for water to uh, water their cattle. There, There is vegetation, uh, but they just need water so that their cattle can drink in the desert. And so the policy is quite simple. We drill lots of boreholes and we access this fossil ground water. Um, and now we can grow our cattle industry, we can grow exports, our farmers are happy, our communities are happy, fantastic. Uh, so we've got a really strong and, uh, and vibrant um, uh, uh, agriculture industry. Um, now hopefully you're seeing the flaw in the plan because a strong uh, can of course very often be brittle as well. Uh, and uh, and the, the next of these ways of um, uh, enabling people to generate impact uh, by becoming more resilient is that you enable them not just to be strong but to be flexible. Um, uh, and so my my strong multinational company is now exposed to a whole load of um, of, of international market forces and other things um, that I've got no idea about. And um, uh, and actually, uh, we have a fossil uh, water resource which is going to run dry at some point. And your incredible strong uh, agricultural uh, sector can suddenly crash and burn as soon as the water runs out. And in addition to that, you've also got the, the challenge that your cattle are uh, still uh, on the ground trying to eat every morsel of grass or bush or whatever they can find during uh, during droughts. Uh, and you've got plenty of water for them to drink. You just bring in some extra feed and actually they trash the land so that when the rain does come back, uh, the grass doesn't come back. Uh, and actually you've trashed this permanently. Uh, and so what, what felt like it was a very strong strategy, in fact, is is actually creating a bit of a, an environmental and social disaster for you. Uh, so that was my, my PhD in a, in a nutshell. Um, so uh, how do you get around this? Uh, we need to think beyond strategies for just making people stronger and better able to resist um, change. Change is going to happen um, and there will always be circumstances where that change overcomes us. Uh, so we need to think about how we can move from um, robustness to recovery and, uh, and enable organizations and, and people to bounce back from changes that have impacted on them negatively or that we think will impact on them negatively to help them cope better, survive and <coughs> continue doing the things that they do best. So uh, in business terms, uh, I might get myself some insurance that will manage to help us cope as a company if I get sick, because actually, you know what, let's not go with this whole multinational franchising scary thing, uh, which means it's just me, uh, and there's a limit to what I can do. Um, and of course, if I get sick, uh, whether it's um, uh, food poisoning in Cardiff uh, or, or something more serious, then we've got a problem. Uh, so um, so we have insurance uh, to cover that. We've got insurance if uh, if I say something inappropriate on my podcast and, uh, and someone tries to uh, sue 
me for for def- defamation. Um, uh, and um, <coughs> if we have to contract uh, the size of our company drastically, um, actually a lot of the people that we work with are in fact freelancers. Uh, they may be academics who do stuff on the size side. They may be consultants who work for multiple people. Uh, and actually, we are still able to keep our core staff and keep doing what we're doing, uh, what we do best. Um, uh, and just re- reduced um, uh, our, our outgoings by stopping working with some of those other people, and hopefully they find other people to work with. Um, so not ideal, but uh, we have we have ways and, and means of flexing to uh, to to disaster uh, as as a company. And actually, small is beautiful uh, when it comes to being flexible. Uh, now, in policy terms. Uh, my example is that uh, instead of extending and expanding the cattle industry as far as you possibly can to get more and more exports and more and more cattle on the ground, uh, actually you keep this uh, keep this capped. Um, so um, there are going to be social impacts of closing boreholes. Um, yeah, let's let's just can try and do things as, as sustainable as we can with what we've got. But let's just put a halt to, to expanding this any further. And let's get back in touch with some of the old ancient ways in which people who used to keep livestock before there were, in fact, um, uh, boreholes, uh, how, how they actually did things. Uh, and so what they used to do was, well, they would just move from around the landscape to wherever there was rain. Uh, and where there was rain, uh, there would be surface water, and you would track that rain across the landscape with uh, with your cattle. Uh, and uh, and actually, there are still um, uh, people who have large herds who do that today. Uh, and some of the the, the richer people, they um, simply own uh, bits of land in different parts of the desert, and they get their big uh, cattle trucks and they truck their cattle um, to the part of the landscape that has had rain recently. That's got lots of lush grass, and um, and they don't end up keeping their cattle in the really uh, dry area uh, through the drought and stuffing it up. Um, uh, but the problem is that there's a, a policy which has been increasingly privatising the land. People have been putting up fences. And actually, when you've got fences across a landscape, your average person can't move their cattle across that landscape. Uh, so can we come up with clever ways of enabling people to go back to the old ways and to move their cattle uh, around that landscape, uh, exploiting the forage resources where the, the rain has been, uh, and actually m- managing that landscape way more sustainably? Um, a bit more effort, um, but that uh, capacity to adapt to drought uh, rather than just trying to be strong enough uh, to have a big enough herd and enough money to buy enough forage uh, is actually way better in the long term. If it means that you actually have a rangeland that bounces back and um, uh, now when the grass comes, uh, when the rain comes, the grass comes. Uh, now, of course, the problem with recovery strategies like these is that you can't bounce back from everything. At a certain point, uh, you help through your research, uh, this organization, this group, to to come up with a, a strategy that, that, yeah, it will help them in pretty much any circumstance. But uh, then you reach a certain threshold and that's it. You're, you're, you're doomed. It's just too big. You can't cope. Uh, and so that's when you need to to move into reorganization. And this is now actually adapting the the way that you do stuff, you know, the the structure, the function of your system, um, so that you can still get the key things you need when things go wrong. So my research now is enabling these people, these organizations, to change what they do, how they do things, so they protect their core mission and they still achieve the things that are most important to them. 
Now, in business terms, uh, this is actually about keeping fast track impact um, small, small but nimble. Um, so uh, we've reached a certain size um, and we have no intention of ever growing any bigger than we are at the moment. Uh, we've made a decision as a company that's as big as we get. Uh, we want this to be something that we enjoy, that we've got control over, that uh, that is actually going to be resilient uh, in future. Um, uh, and <coughs> so that nimbleness is great because it enables us to expand to new opportunities as they arise. And uh, we are then able to diversify what we do. Huh, that sounds like a good idea. Let's try some of that and see what happens. Uh, and so now um, uh, we are adapting um, to Brexit and to the, the cliff edge of, um, of REF by focusing more on our European customers. Uh, I'm going to be going to a European uh, conference of research administrators um, and such like. Um, and um, uh, and I'm promoting what we do there. I'm going to Sweden in about a month's time. Um, we already do work across most um, Irish universities, but we're, we're trying to expand um, that part of, of our business. Uh, and of course, we're diver diversifying beyond um, impact training uh, to uh, other forms of training. Um, and uh, and it gives us yeah lots more things that people might be able to go for. So uh, perhaps, um, yeah, we, we're still doing the core thing, our core mission, getting uh, people to be able to, uh, to do more impact and get more uh, thinking time back, uh, be who they are as a researcher, but at the same time, make the world a better place. Uh, so we're, we're achieving that core um, that core mission, but we're just doing it in a way that is slightly different. That's not just all focused on the current big market opportunity in the UK. Uh, in policy terms, uh, this is about learning from the past. Um, so uh, in my example in the Kalahari Desert, <coughs> Uh, we're going beyond these uh, these these other um, uh, th these ways of kind of moving around uh, the the landscape, and we're looking at lots of other things. So I did a bunch of oral histories, we did focus groups with innovators, uh, loads of, of different uh, ideas that came out of this. Uh, we also combined some stuff from from the scientific literature as well to to try and come up with new ways of doing agriculture that would still enable you to maintain your livelihood, maintain um, uh, livestock um, uh, and um, uh, and with 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 luck um, uh, it, it will work um, so for example you can slightly contract and combine different herds across lots of different boreholes uh, that enables you to um, uh, now rest the the grassland around one borehole at a time and you take it each person uh, takes uh, takes their turns uh, and uh, and now nobody has to completely get rid of their herd. Um, so nobody gets their livelihood completely exposed to this problem. Um, but actually, uh, as you take turns to rest the land around your borehole, um, then um, then you... Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm slightly distracted here. I'm realising the great thing about having my window open is I get some fresh air and birdsong. Um, but uh, my wife is now having a very long and involved chat with the, post the postman. Uh, so... There we go. I'm going to close my window. <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, uh, we're thinking about just really innovative ways of changing how we do agriculture that are still suited to to our environment and to our culture, which is why it's not about just bringing in the science and this is how you can now genetically modify your herds. Uh, this is this is about going to the heart, past, uh, doing some oral histories, going to the, the wise people who have good ideas um, uh, and um, and seeing seeing what comes out. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, now, the problem with these these adaptive strategies, which are about reorganising, um, uh, is that uh, that again there is a limit uh, to the extent to which you are able to to adapt, uh, and um, at a certain point you run out of options, and, and this is the problem that that I'm hitting up against now. So. What do you do when, okay, I've got a few ideas here. I can uh, I can help people to become stronger, to be more robust, but no, it's not enough. They've, actually, I've, I've, I've made them brittle and they've actually failed even more uh, badly than, than I expected. Well, okay, I've, I've, and I've enabled people now um, uh, to, 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 to recover. They're, they're more flexible. They, they bounce back um, uh, and, uh, and they can bounce back much more rapidly and effectively than, than they might otherwise have done uh, as a result of, of my research. Uh, yeah, again, there is a limit to what you can bounce back from. Uh, I help them reorganize, and, and actually now they are able to do things differently so that they can cope with whatever gets thrown at them. But again, there's a limit to what you can actually cope with. Uh, and so the final step is to say, well, what about if I enable people to reorientate or transform the system into something new that's structured or that functions in new ways so that you still get um, stuff that you value? It's just different stuff. So you're completely reframing the challenge now and you're finding more disruptive ways of achieving things that are different, but that are valued more. Um, in business terms, uh, for Fast Track Impact, um, this is, for me, about reorientated, re reinventing ourselves as a, as a company. Um, that is as much about productivity as it is about uh, impact. Um, because for me, what I've realized uh, over the years of training is that the number one barrier, the one, number one reason why people don't do impact is time. Um, it doesn't matter how much I infuse or inspire or equip or give people confidence. Actually, if I haven't got time, then I'm not going to do impact. Um, uh, and so uh, for me, uh, productivity training is a, a natural extension of that. But it's not just produce more and more and um, uh, and yeah, more papers, more grant, more money. Uh, it's actually about productivity so that we can do cooler stuff. So I get more productive, which means I'm more more efficient, which means I get work-life balance. It means that I get thinking time. It means that I get to, to actually do the stuff that I love most and re-motivate and uh, reignite my passion. Uh, and actually then as a, a corollary of that, I, I, I now start to engage with impact. And if I want to engage with impact, you know what, I've got time to do that. Uh, so it's it's not about becoming a productivity company. Um, uh, and my book, The Productive Researcher, is not about um, just productivity. It, it is about that that reconception of, of production, uh, that, that actually we're, we're happy producing less and, and being more. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that in a, in a future episode. Uh, I'm going to revisit that book um, and what I'm doing in, in my productivity training and what I've been learning from all the, the crazy, challenging, cool questions that you've been giving me in trainings. Um, but I'll come to that uh, later. Um, uh, and so this is this is about the the, the kind of the deeper outcomes of of impact training um, uh, and uh, and motivating and inspiring people to reframe their relationship with work so they've got time and permission to be curious and to think more as well as doing the basics like for many of us doing more impact. So. We've uh, we've reached a point in in our company where demand has um, has very much outstripped supply um, for our face to face trainings, uh, and so uh, that is a, another challenge. And um, and so um, for us, this is also now about transforming our our mode of delivery. Uh, and uh, so I've got a 
what, five month um, waiting list at the moment. We're taking bookings for April next year at the moment. Um, so that's more than five months. We're a six month um, uh, waiting uh, time to, to get a face-to-face training with me. Uh, I am a full-time academic. I can't actually do that many per month. Um, so this isn't that I'm like working every single day training. It's not that crazy. Um, so, um, so yeah, so how do we innovate our way out of that? How can we transform our, ourselves into something else? Um, is this that we just become a, an online MOOC type, um, I don't know, yeah, come and do an online course kind of thing? Yeah, I'm not into that, to be honest. I, I don't think this is something that you can really effectively learn through an online course. The, the lessons you need to learn are much deeper. The questions that you need answered require discussion. Um, uh, and, and I think that that, that, no, that doesn't achieve the, the kind of the deeper goals that, that I've got um, for, for impact training. Um, uh, and so what we've we've launched um, last month, um, I've not really promoted this properly yet, but um, uh, well, here I am um, telling you now, um, is uh, interactive video-based courses. Uh, so the idea is that uh, everyone comes together in the room uh, and uh, you've got four videos. Uh, you've got a facilitator in the room from your university who has an, a download pack with lots of uh, instructions. They introduce the day, play the first video, introduce, uh, well, I introduce the first exercise, they then facilitate facilitate that exercise. There's lots of small group work in between. Uh, I then come back, um, kind of debrief uh, in my video and move on to the next topic and they, etc. So it's video interactive uh, exercise, video interactive exercise times four. Um, and then for the final hour of the training, I then come in via Skype and answer all of the questions. Um, and then um, I explain how people can use my email system to guarantee that they get answers to all of their questions after uh, after that. So I answer most questions in that hour, but they still have that opportunity because, hey, what's the point of just doing stuff online, doing webinars, doing videos, etc.? And uh, I have no idea if people are actually getting it or not, if they've totally misunderstood it, if they've got problems um, uh, and, and if they're stuck, then I need to be able to help them unstick so they can actually uh, achieve impact. So, um, so transforming us, and um, and you'll see um, at some point I've got a meeting later today with with uh, with my team um, to to work out how can we perhaps uh, re rebrand ourselves. It's maybe too strong a word, but we've got a new a new strapline. Um, we're thinking of doing a, a complete website redesign, just repositioning ourselves um, in relation to this this transformation. So, um, policy. This uh, this is now. Um, this is getting a, a, a lot more challenging. So this is now uh, a paper that I wrote, uh, the final paper in the series of papers that I wrote off the back of my PhD, which I published three or four years ago now. Um, and it is just a paper. It's an idea. Uh, it's never been put into practice. Um, and it may be a bad idea if anyone tried it, just to warn you. Um, but this is my attempt now at, uh, at uh, going into transformation. Um, so we've got a, a farming system in the Kalahari now that is more and more difficult to, to maintain. Um, and uh, the, the big thing here is is climate change. Um, uh, so 50 years from now, uh, actually, none of this might be viable. And these are challenges that, that yeah, you can't bounce back from, you can't even adapt to um, really very well. So so could you completely change the, the structure and the function of this agricultural system so that you still get the core things that people need? And ultimately, these are livelihoods. Um, 
uh, and for the country, it's maybe GDP. But to be honest, I, I think yeah, you, if you lose your your cattle exports, you've probably lost your GDP um, from from that that sector. Uh, but for me, what I care about now is we've got communities of people um, who have lived in these places for generations, and they are under threat. So how can we maintain a livelihood for these people uh, with something that challenging? Um, and the idea is that, well, we say uh, there are other things that might have, <coughs> might have value other than just um, cattle. Um, so, um, so first of all, could you um, think about moving from cattle to small stock, so uh, goats and, and sheep, for example, um, that are actually much better adapted to a drier uh, climate? Um, and yeah, there are some cultural barriers there. Um, uh, that sounds good, but uh, but actually there's there's some some fairly major barriers to, to making that happen. Um, so what about then carbon? And what about wildlife um, uh, as alternatives? Uh, and so there is this idea of uh, what's known as silvopastoralism. So the the idea that you uh, have a system that that mixes low densities of um, of maybe some cattle, um, uh, particular breeds that that are more uh, adept at coping with drought and uh, and some small stock with trees. Um, but specifically, the proposal here is um, a uh, an indigenous species that lives in this part of the Kalahari Desert uh, that is uh, popularly known as the shepherd's tree. Um, uh, and the great thing about this is that it's a, it's, it's a really dense tree. It grows uh, for a very long time. Um, uh, it's got, uh, in fact, more of its biomass underground than it has overground. Um, and so it stores a huge amount of, uh, of carbon. Uh, and, uh, and actually, uh, there is an international carbon market now, and um, the, there may be investors who would be interested in uh, helping fund the transition to this very new system, system, especially when they hear that um, it is actually good for wildlife as well. Um, so we're helping uh, local people. Uh, we're getting carbon, um, uh, mitigating climate change, and um, and and maybe getting some some benefits for for wildlife as well. Um, and for that small herd that you do continue to have, uh, which uh, I would argue is perhaps of importance culturally uh, more than anything else, um, but also it's going to give us um, some some nutrition. There's going to be some milk and, and things like that. Great, we still got them there. Uh, the, the reason it's called a shepherd's tree is because uh, this is a tree that has um, palatable leaves. And um, uh, during drought, this is the one tree that continues to have green leaves. And those leaves are edible um, by, by small stock and by, by cattle. Uh, and that's because it's got this massive um, taproot, uh, one of the deepest taproots of any tree that, that exists, uh, that goes all the way down into that, um, that fossil um, uh, uh, water reserve uh, without having to, to get a, a borehole down into it. Um, uh, and so, so actually, you are able now to maintain that way of life, uh, that culture, uh, uh, and you've got uh, enough of an income stream, hopefully, through the... Um, uh, through through carbon um, and perhaps through wildlife, um, uh, depending on how much wildlife you get back um, and how many tourists you can get. And uh, we've completely rethought this system. Um, 
So uh, it really does, um, uh, for me, it's, it's a real, it's a really creative thing. Um, I'm not that yet with my global food security program um, project. Um, at the moment, um, the, where I'm at with this is that uh, this is a project which is, is, is looking at um, how we can make the, the, the UK's dairy sector resilient to, uh, to Brexit. Um, and hell, hey, Brexit is my transformation. Brexit uh, may actually uh, transform the face of farming um, and uh, the problem is just so unpredictable um but um but yeah i'm i'm getting there i'm, I'm thinking about it um but but you can get a sense now of, of just how valuable this this can be um i've spoken for quite a while now um and i'm kind of thinking um there's another element to this and i'm going to thinking i'm going to do a part two of this um because uh, you've got limited time and you've probably uh, given up uh, a specific amount of time to listen to to this podcast um, because what I what I've been thinking about as I've been thinking through the these uh, different ways of um, thinking about impact as different forms of resilience uh, is actually how you can apply this to personal resilience. Um, and actually, I think that, uh, that 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 there are some really important and deep lessons for us as researchers in terms of how we can apply this this theoretical framework, this thinking, uh, to our own. Um, uh, yeah, uh, ability to uh, resist uh, or recover from or adapt to grant uh, rejection, uh, paper rejection, the fact that I pitched my book and everyone hated it or I published it and I got horrendous reviews. I feel humiliated now. Uh, rejection is just part of, uh, of academic life um, and we all have to be resilient to this. Um, uh, and so so I want to have a, maybe have a look at, at that as one, uh, one application of this. How can we become more resilient to failure um, and potentially transform ourselves to feed off of this and to, to transform this into something really empowering and good? Uh, and the other thing is um, is, is, is workplace bullying. Um, so uh, I think uh, in academia there are some some really quite interesting fine lines here because there's a lot of kind of quite robust cut and thrust argument and debate. Um, and you know you, you can't pussyfoot around a lot of these issues when you think that someone is uh, factually wrong um, or deeply misguided. You need to be able to to have that debate uh, and potentially have that debate openly uh, with people. Um, uh, and that cut and thrust of academic debate um, can sometimes cross a line and um, and very subtly start to turn into something that feels quite intimidating, that feels quite humiliating. And at what point does that actually turn into to bullying? Um, and I know <coughs> many people who... Uh, who, who struggle um, with uh, things that they're not willing to quite call bullying. But actually, when I look at the impact it's having on them, I would absolutely call bullying. Uh, and I've myself experienced um, workplace workplace bullying um, from uh, from my PhD through uh, pretty much every job that I've had. Um, uh, am I just, uh, I don't know, uh, do people just target me? Who knows? So um, so let's have a look at uh, this uh, in a part two, because um, uh, I've run out of time now as well, to be honest. I'm meant to be calling someone. Um, uh, and you've run out of time. So part two uh, is going to be on personal resilience, uh, applying this stuff um, to, to your personal life as a researcher. So uh, yeah, enjoy um, when I get around to that. 
Um, and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Have a fantastic one. And do, please apply this stuff. Uh, think about those questions. Write them down. Uh, I'll put them into the show notes so it's easy. You can copy and paste them into a note on your phone or something. Uh, and just meditate on them. How can I, through my research, enable people to become more robust, to recover more effectively from things that go wrong, to reorganize and to adapt and to reorientate, transform or disrupt so that what I do in my research can have incredible impact.